Isn't that great? They were uh, at the airport while we were all still asleep this morning, getting ready to head to the Bahamas, and they made it safely into Toronto. And, uh, and so I hope the next legs of the journey have gone well. But in addition to all the people listed on there, we also have uh, next week Kevin Bain, Aaron Borge, Rudy Poyer, uh, Richard Lefavre, and Troy Stevens. Uh, plus a few more from another church who are going to be joining us, who are going next week. And as you'll remember, they are going to rebuild the entire community of Eight Mile Rock because of your generous, faith-filled giving. We're making a difference for that city, that town destroyed by Hurricane Dorian. And so uh, what I texted to them this morning, uh, because I didn't go to see them off at 3.30 a.m., But I texted them this morning uh, and said, I'm praying that you will see God do miracles in and through you. And Nathan texted me after they landed in Toronto this morning, and he said, that miracle is already coming true. When we got on the plane from Moncton to Toronto, our whole group surrounded this poor man and woman who didn't know each other, but they were talking. So our group is all around them, he said, and they are talking, this, this, this man and this woman who don't know each other are talking about this amazing ministry called Celebrate Recovery at Moncton Wesleyan. And the woman was flying out west to pick up her nephew who's struggling with drug addiction. And had been praying, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do when we get back home. And Nathan turned around and said, well, I'm the pastor who helps lead Celebrate Recovery at Moncton Wesleyan. And when they get back, they're going to go together and find some freedom and the love of Jesus. And then the guy that they were talking to didn't know Jesus yet. They started talking about spiritual things. They gave him a book and he said, I'm going to read through this and maybe I'll see you at church too. Listen, when you go out in the name of Jesus with faith, believing in what he can do through you, you start to see miracles everywhere. All right. I'm also praying for a miracle that I'll keep my voice here for the next 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, I had that cold that went around for uh, a while. I got it at the beginning of January. I was good for a week and a half, and now it's back. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And uh, if you want to shake my hand after, I'll just give you the Lysol blessing. Uh, instead, because uh, this is, is not pleasant. But I, and I also, I can't help it, I sang my face off for Jesus this morning. And I knew that I was supposed to keep it quiet in order to be able to teach you today, but I just couldn't help it. Because when we start singing the praises of God, I feel like the Bible says, if I'm silent, the rocks will have to cry out in my place. And I don't want no rock singing the name of Jesus on my behalf. I'm going to do it because I love him. And I want to see him lifted up in this place. So what excuse do you have for not singing? Okay, I'm sorry. That was a little too far. And so uh, today we are starting a brand new series called Relationships from Broken to Blessed. And uh, I wonder how many of you would admit that relationships are not easy. They're just hard, right? Relationships are hard. And Jesus says that you have to love everybody. That's hard. (laughs) Because I may love everybody, but that doesn't mean I always like them. 
right? And, and, and so what if there was one crucial ingredient that is necessary to make relationships work? And, and, and there are a lot of different things that we could think of. There, the, when it comes to a, a marriage, what if there was one crucial ingredient that without this, it's going to fall apart? What about in, in your work relationships or at school, with your friends or, or in your, your neighborhood? When you look at what the Bible says, when you look at your life and, and your relationships, I think that one of the decisive elements that sustains our relationships through better or worse, thick or thin, good times and bad, is the word grace. Now, when we talk about grace, in the English language, we have a lot of different meanings for that word. Sometimes people will talk about a ballet dancer, a ballerina, as having grace. Uh, I, is that ballerina or yoga? I'm not sure exactly. Uh, but uh, I don't, you would say that's an example of not having grace. Uh, some families will say before they pray for dinner, they'll call it saying grace. That's a different use of the word. Some, sometimes if you talk about someone you respect, you'll talk about them having a dignity and a grace about them. And so when you look at this, uh, all these different definitions what you will find is that there is one primary definition that we're going to look at today, and it's what we sing about in the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And so uh, Chuck Swindoll defines it like this, grace is acceptance and special favor that is not deserved, earned, or repayable. Would you say that out loud with me? Let's read that together. Grace is acceptance and special favor that is not deserved, earned, or repayable. Okay, now, I'm giving my best up here. You got to help me. Some of you are not helping me, okay? Let's read this out loud together. Let's read it, and because this, if you don't get this today, then you're going to miss what God has for us, okay? Let's read it together. Grace is acceptance and special favor that is not deserved, earned, or repayable. And so, where do we see the greatest example of grace? And of course, it is in the life of Jesus. The Bible says that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that on the cross, he offers us acceptance and special favor that we do not deserve that we cannot earn, and we cannot repay. And he doesn't say, well, Joel, first you clean up your life, and once you get your finances in order, and you stop doing this, and you stop doing that, and once you get everything cleaned up in your life, then you can see me. No, 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 no. The message of the gospel is a message of grace. That Jesus accepts me with all of my faults and all of my shortcomings and all of my sins and all of my failures. And he accepts me as I am. And then get this, he loves me too much to just leave me that way. He also helps me to change. He helps me to grow. He wants to transform me by his truth and grace so that I can be an overcomer, empowered to tackle every challenge that comes into my life. And then 
the Father has prepared a place for me in heaven where there will be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, and I get to spend eternity with him forever. And that is the message of gospel. That is the hope of our salvation. Oh, folks, you're asleep today. Come on now. There we go. Bring it to me. Hey, come on, come on, come. Give it to me. Give it to me. Give me some love. (laughs) Because listen, there's nothing that I can do to deserve that. There's no way that I could be good enough to earn this acceptance and special favor in my life. But when I surrender myself to Jesus, I receive all those things and more by his amazing grace. And listen, here's here's what happens. Because of this amazing grace that God has extended to me, now I have to do the same thing for other people. See, whether you like it or not, now his grace becomes the foundation for all my relationships. And so let's talk about what grace does. Catch this. Grace becomes the oil that lubricates the gears of our relationships. Do we have any gearheads here today? People who love cars? Listen, why do you have to put fresh oil in your car? Because without oil, those gears and all those hard metal parts start to grind against each other. And in that that frictions, things start to lock up and get bound. And before you know it, your engine starts to make some really bad noises that it's not supposed to make, and you're stuck on the side of the road. And the same is true in relationships. Grace is the oil in the gears of our relationship. You, You notice people who have grace because they have very little tolerance for shortcomings, right? Like they, they're just set off like this. And with grace, you're able to get along with people you might not otherwise be able to get along with. And so go ahead and grab your Bible. And today we are in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 47. Because when the gears of the, of the relationship of your marriage come grinding to a halt, what many people will do is say, do you know what? I think it's going to be easier to leave this person and go find somebody else. At work, sometimes we say, well, I'm going to leave my, my workplace and, and maybe I can go find somewhere else where, where people will be nicer to me. Or, or I'm, gonna, I'm going to, to leave my friends and go find new friends. Right? Some people will leave their church and try to go find a church that, that's more perfect and where everybody's nicer and more their style. And listen, here's the problem. Here's, here's why that often doesn't work. Because no matter where you go, there is not another spouse, job, church, or friend on the planet with whom you can experience relational joy and fulfillment until you learn to extend grace to others in the same way that God has done it for you. And as long as you keep living that way, it's going to keep following you into every relationship until you learn what we're talking about today. And find freedom. And so here in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a picture of what this looks like 
to live this way. In Matthew 5, 38, Jesus starts out, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And so first, Jesus acknowledges how we normally live in this world. The norm is somebody says, you poke me in the eye, I'm going to poke you right back. You, you knock out my tooth, I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> you hurt me or, or t- talk bad about me to other people out there, then I'm going to tell everybody even worse things about you. That is the normal functioning of our society, is it not? But do you realize this idea of fairness What we think is fair is actually the very thing that is causing things like war, missiles, nuclear bombs, and terrorism in our world. Now think about this. It just starts with a little offense, a hurt, and somebody attacks back. And then, well, that's not fair, and so... So that group attacks back, and then the other group has to, well, that's not fair, and and we're going to get back at you, and and then back at them, and and it escalates, and it escalates. And I hear people all the time, we want peace. Why, why, Why can't we just stop all the fighting and the wars in the world today? Why can't countries and leaders just get along? And yet what's, what's, What's so interesting to notice is is many times we say that very thing and we wonder why countries can't get along and we can't even get along with the people at work. We can't even get along with our neighbors. We can't even get along with the people at school. And then somehow we're talking about the world coming to peace when we can't even find peace in our own relationships. And where does it come from? It comes from this false idea of fairness. Because Jesus says we need to change this kind of thinking. Jesus says that all these these evil things of wars and atrocities and hatred and racism in our world will never stop until someone finally steps up and says, no more. Yes, you hurt me, but I am not going to attack you back. It's going to stop right here because I'm going to take that pain. And instead of trying to put it on others, I'm going to take that pain and give it to Jesus who can heal me and truly bring peace in this world. And that's what Jesus says, picking up in verse 39. Jesus says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. In other words, it doesn't help to just fight back. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, Let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's normal in the world, to love your neighbor but hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, people you like, what are you doing more than, than others? 
Do not even pagans do that? And so Jesus points to these destructive patterns, and he says, we don't realize this is the stuff that's tearing our world apart. And so Dr. Larry Cornine points to four stages that we often go through. And the first is hurt. Hurt is when someone wounds our our sense of being or wounds our feelings. And when we feel a hurt, the next thing that follows after it is anger. I can't believe you did that. How dare you? And depending upon your personality, you may express that anger outwards in a, in a way that others can see, or you might keep it inside and stuff it down where nobody else sees. But, but however it is expressed or even not expressed, when you experience anger, whether it's inside or external, when somebody is flustering and blustering and hollering and mad, you realize the, the emotion that has caused that anger is feeling hurt on the inside. Do you realize that? That anger comes out of hurt. Anger comes out of feeling embarrassed. When we feel disrespected, when we feel offended, when we feel devalued, when we feel disregarded, the result is anger. And if we don't deal with it appropriately, according to the Bible, that anger then becomes resentment. Resentment. Resentment, at this point, is where we develop an attitude against those people. And so now, everything we do, automatically, we will always take it the wrong way. Even if it was innocent, it doesn't matter what they do, we are going to attribute it to bad motives because everything about that person now we see through the filter of resentment. Not too long ago, I said something to somebody, and they just went off the handle. I mean, overreacted in a way that really took me by surprise. And I wondered, where is this coming from? I, I, maybe I thought I this person liked me. Maybe they don't like me after all. I, can, I can't believe they're so angry at me. But then when you start digging and ask the right questions, when you realize something, all of a sudden things come into focus. When you realize that many times when someone is angry at me, their anger is not actually about me. Oh, don't miss this. This is huge for some of us here today to realize, to realize that when, when somebody completely overreacts about something, when someone's response is disproportionate to the offense, usually the reason for that is because accidentally you stumbled into something that triggered a past offense in their life. And so all of a sudden, when somebody goes from zero to 100 just like this, you're like, whoa, where did that come from? Many times they are angry at you, but their anger is not actually about you. And even then what happens is we're upset because they're angry at us. And so we attack back and things escalate. And even though it wasn't about us, all of a sudden we make it about us. When if instead we would just keep it calm and ask the right questions and understand that this is a hurt person 
This is a messed up, bruised person who is responding in this angry way to me that many times we can get to the root of their anger and help them deal with their issues. Because when we hold on to this resentment and we stuff it down inside, what it leads to is destruction in our lives. It starts affecting us physically and emotionally and spiritually. Even your relationship with people you like starts to break down. And your relationship with God starts to break down. And so Jesus gives us this perfect story that gives us an example in the book of Luke. If you want to find Luke chapter 15, and while you're finding that, let me set up this story. Uh, Jesus says that in this story, there is a father who has two sons, the older son and the younger, who we often call the prodigal son. And one day, the younger son, son comes to his father and says something really, really insensitive. He asks for his inheritance before his father dies. In other words, basically he is saying, Father, I don't care about you. All I care about is your money, and I would rather you be dead so I can have your money. And the father with a broken heart goes ahead and gives to his younger son the allotted apportionment of his inheritance. And so the younger son, he goes off to a foreign land. He spends all the money on wine, women, and parties, and he spends it all. And finally, a famine hits the land, and he is in big trouble. And this younger brother, this prodigal son, is sitting there in the mud, and, and, and he's He's discouraged and he's depressed and he doesn't know what to do and he, and he realizes that he's been foolish. He realizes how he has hurt his father, how he has abandoned his family, how he stole this money and now it's all gone. And he realizes, well, back home, the servants who work in the barn live a better life than I do. Maybe if I go home, I don't deserve to be called a son anymore, but maybe at least my father will give me a job working in the barn, working as a servant. And if then I can get a paycheck, at least that'll be different than how I live now. And so he decides to go home, and the younger son is shocked to find that his father welcomes him with open arms. The Bible says the father puts a ring on his finger, which is a sign that he forgives him and restores his status as a son in the family, and that the father kills the fattened calf and throws a party, and they all eat T-bone steak on the grill, and they all live happily ever after, right? Right? Well, let's see what happens next. Verse 25 of Luke 15. When you pick up the story, it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants, and he asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Now, at this point, you don't know exactly what the response of the older brother is going to be yet. Is he going to be happy 
that his younger brother has finally turned his life around, gotten things straight, and come back home? No, verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So remember our progression. Remember what happened. He feels hurt. And out of that hurt, it results in anger. And as he does not deal with that anger appropriately over time, that anger becomes resentment. Watch what he says next in the middle of verse 28. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. I'm the good one. I deserve better than this. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he does not say when my poor misguided brother came home. He says, no, 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 not my brother, this son of yours came home, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now think about this. Who should be offended more, the father or the older brother? After all, it's the father was the one who was abandoned. It was the father whose money was stolen. It's the father who was rejected. But the younger The son, the older brother, makes it all about him. And remember, when you hold on to pain from your past, you will always overreact to things in the present. When you hold on to pain from your past, you will always overreact to things in the present. But listen to what the father says. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so you see the difference between the father and the older brother. The father had a heart filled with grace. He wanted to forgive and make things right. The younger brother held on to his resentment and resentment from the past kept him in bondage in the present. And so the father extends grace to both sons. We only think about how he forgives the younger son who resented him and left, but he also extends grace to the older son who resented him and stayed at home. And because of that, because of grace, the father is is happy and filled with joy and celebrating. He's living the good life while the older brother is still carrying this resentment from the past. He's living in misery. The father has experienced more pain and yet also has more joy. The younger brother has experienced less pain but is miserable. See, often it's not our circumstances, it's not what others do to us, it's how we respond that makes the difference. The father extended grace, the older brother held on to his pain. And so next week we're going to come back and look at at how to become more like the older uh, or the father And how to move beyond the tendencies 
of the older brother. And we're also going to talk next week about what it looks like to, to put some boundaries up in our lives. Because automatically we're all saying, yeah, but people can take advantage of you and, and people can abuse you. And so we're going to talk about that next week as well. But I just want to ask, I just want to ask you today, who do you identify more with? With the father or the older brother? See, maybe you're here today and, and you're stuck. You're stuck, you're in, you're in pain, and you don't understand why. It seems like you just can't move forward in your life, no matter what you do. You're miserable, you're discouraged, and I wonder if the reason is today, because in ways that you have not even realized, there is pain from your past that you have never surrendered to Jesus. That there are people who have hurt you in the past and you've never given it over to Him. You're still holding it against them. You're still holding on to that in your heart. And I want to tell you today something about forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean that you pretend what the other person did was okay and it doesn't matter. If what they did was okay and it didn't matter, then you wouldn't have to forgive them in the first place. The very act of forgiveness is recognizing that what they did to you was wrong. But what you do when you forgive is this. You recognize that we serve a God of justice who says, I will avenge. It's not your job, God says, I will. I'll take care of it. And what happens is, in forgiveness, you let them off the hook, recognizing that there's nothing you can do to make that right. But as you let them off the hook, you recognize that they are still on God's hook. God still has it under control. That the justice of God is true because of His faithfulness. And so much of the pain in our lives is because when someone hurts us, we try to take the place of God as if somehow we can be judge and jury and also execute the sentence. And you will always set yourself up for failure and bondage whenever you try to play God in your life. So can I pray with you? And I just want to ask you if you'd take a minute to close your eyes and just listen to what God might be saying to you today. As I've been talking, I think it's very possible that for some of you, the Holy Spirit has brought to mind faces and names from people in your past. And maybe you even thought that you had forgiven them. But I would say it's possible that if God has brought that name back to mind, maybe there is more you still need to forgive. Sometimes you have to keep forgiving over and over and over and over and over and over before it finally starts to take root in your hearts and you find freedom. And remember, next week we're going to talk about boundaries and 
just right now, right now in your heart, would you say, Father, I surrender to you. Father, I, that pain that I've carried for all this time, I give it to you. I've been carrying it and holding on to it. But right now, with my hands open wide, I reach out and, and I give it to you and I lay it down at your feet. All of that pain, all of that injustice, all of those wrongs, all of that resentment, all of that anger, all of the destruction, I bring it to you and I lay it down at your feet today. And I give it to you. And I trust you that you're going to take care of it. And Lord, I pray for that person who hurt me. As an act of my forgiveness, I pray that you would be merciful to them. Because they deserve to be paid back. In my mind, they deserve to be hurt just as much as they hurt me. But Lord, I know I can trust you if I just tell tell you that I want you to be merciful to them just like you have been merciful to me. Lord, I don't just want them to experience payback. I want them to experience transformation. And so, Lord, I pray for those who have hurt me. And Lord, I know I can trust you. And if there's anyone here today who maybe you also relate to the prodigal son, not just the older brother, but the prodigal son, who rejected his family and ran off to a faraway land and tried to forget about his father. And maybe you're here today, and the fact is, you have been running away from your father God. And today he's speaking to you. He wants to forgive you and set you free. Remember, as we said today, the message of the gospel is this, that Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for your sins so that you can be forgiven and set free to receive his acceptance and special favor, even though you don't deserve it, you can't earn it, and the only way you can repay it is simply to surrender to him. And if that's where you are today, would you just open up your heart and say, Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me so that I can be forgiven. And I submit to you now, I surrender to you. Come in. And wash away my sin. Wash away my sin. Make me clean inside. Give me a new start. A new beginning. And from now on, I want to be your child. Part of the family of God. I want to spend eternity with you. I want to receive your Holy Spirit into my life. 
And so we surrender to you now in the name of Jesus. If you prayed that prayer, then today you can take communion with us the very first time as a believer in Jesus. And so we invite the ushers to go ahead and come on down as we prepare to distribute the elements here. At this church, we practice what is called open communion. It means that anybody can participate as long as you are a believer in Jesus. You don't have to be a member of this church. As long as you are a believer in Jesus, we invite you to take a piece of the bread, to take one of the cups, and then hold on to it. And after we sing for a little bit, I'm going to come back once everybody has it in hand, and we're going to take it together. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray your blessing upon, upon these elements. Lord, we pray with gratitude for what Jesus did on the cross, his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. We know in your word that the punishment for sin is death. Blood had to be shed because of our sin. And so Jesus died and his blood was poured out so that we can be forgiven. And so as we take hold of this sacrament, and hold it in our hands. May we be reminded of the power of what you did for us, the ultimate demonstration of grace for those of us who do not deserve it. <laughs>